Good morning. I am so glad to be with you in this time of study as God continues to speak to us through this teaching series, Conversations. I love how the scripture has recorded specific conversations Jesus had with individuals in the mainstream of life, with his own disciples. And now we shift a bit and turn to some conversations that took place between church leaders and church congregations or church families. Conversations with the very first church still speak today. So I invite you into Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we encounter a piece of a conversation about personal commitment. Following Jesus becomes a very personal conversation. When we know who Christ is as God's son, when we know the love of God demonstrated through Jesus and we we look at the cross and the the empty grave, we understand God's love and and the life of Jesus and that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We then, when we understand this, become accountable to the truth. And you and I have the opportunity to daily respond to the truth of Jesus. When we see the truth of Christ and refuse to follow, that's on us. That's not on our parents or the church, but on us. Because following Jesus and faith in Jesus becomes a very personal experience. Now, we certainly understand that faith in Christ also represents a community experience because the church is indeed a community of believers. But also faith in Christ expresses a very personal encounter. What will we do in response to the truth of Jesus? Uh, This became an emphasis Paul shared in written form to the Christians in Rome. Paul had not visited this particular church But he nonetheless had a deep desire that they would understand their identity in Jesus, having placed their faith in him and having become a part of the church. And Paul used words as God gave him this this incredible message to hold them accountable to a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. I love how these letters written to the churches of the first century that we have recorded in the Bible read uh, like a, a conversation. Oftentimes my phone will buzz and one of my oldest daughters will send me a text. And instead of beginning with pleasantries, they'll just offer a question. Uh, the, I'll answer the text and the message will read, the inspection sticker is out of my car. What do I do? And I'll sometimes text back, could you say hello first? And then they'll they'll lovingly say, Dad, I thought we were always in a conversation. I thought you could always just respond to the next thing. And I see these letters in the New Testament as people of God responding to the very next truth that comes up. So Paul, led by God, spoke some incredible truths, albeit wrote those truths, into the life of the first century church. And like a conversation, these truths were very personal and very real. And Romans represents one of those letters that seems to 
to lack in some of the personableness that, that we see in other books of the New Testament that are epistolary, or meaning that they are letters. But because this was Paul's first true engagement with, with these Christians in Rome, uh, the, the, the personal pleasantries aren't there. Paul just goes straight to the topic. And so we step into this written conversation to learn a bit about how our faith in Jesus expresses a very personal experience, responsibility, and accountability. Now, to better grasp why the personal commitment becomes so important to you and to me, I'd like to share with you a quote from beloved author Ray Ortland. He writes this, I try to drive carefully, but when I borrow a friend's car, I drive very carefully. I don't want to damage the property of a friend and then return it to him all banged up. Uh, even so, and then he makes this correlation, our lives as followers of Jesus are the personal property of someone else. What does he mean by this? The Bible states in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that we have been bought with a price and, and therefore we should glorify God in our bodies. And so because our faith is in Jesus and we recognize that he, he died on the cross for our sins, we, we have been purchased. This becomes the meaning of the word redeemed. We've been purchased back to God through what Jesus has done. And so if our faith is truly in Christ, we no longer belong to ourselves. Our bodies, our faculties are no longer our property. We've been purchased by what Christ has done on the cross. And therefore, our commitment to Jesus becomes very personal because we now belong personally to Him. And so if you struggle at times with this personal accountability with who Jesus Christ is in our lives, then I'd like to share with you some perspectives from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that I know will help you and encourage you to resolve your personal commitment to Jesus so that that commitment is lived out in every part of your life. You know, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, Pilate asked this question, what shall I do with this man who is called the Christ? Now, of all people, we would think Pilate may not be a great example for focusing on how we should respond to Jesus. But the question is powerfully pertinent to what we're about to engage with in the scriptures. What are we to do personally, not corporately? We'll discuss that next time. But what are we to do personally in our hearts in response to Jesus. Well, this becomes the focus of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You, you heard these verses read earlier, verse 1 and 2. And, and for today, we focus on verse 1. Hear these words again. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. I'd like to share with you three perspectives from this one verse that will refresh your personal commitment or reveal to you for the first time how 
responding to Jesus should be something very personal uh, in your own life. So here are perspectives to refresh our personal commitment. And the first perspective comes from the opening of verse 1. That word doesn't seem as key as others, but nonetheless, this word is what we call in the scriptures a transitional word. And so the emphasis here is very key. The first perspective I invite you to embrace is the perspective of the big picture. For just a moment, as we consider our personal commitment to Christ, and as we peer into this written conversation between Paul and the Christians in Rome, consider the big picture. What was taking place in the fullness of this letter that was written to better help us in our personal commitment. The term therefore actually points us back to what Paul had previously written. Now without going through all of the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we look at a concise summary of the previous chapters. I really believe having studied this that the, the term therefore doesn't just point back to the previous word or two, not even to the previous chapter, but to the previous 11 chapters. In these chapters, Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, meaning chapters 1 through 11, to focus them upon the truth of knowing Jesus personally. He answered such questions as, what is what is redemption? What is salvation? What does it mean to truly be changed having placed our faith in Christ? And a, a great summary of all 11 chapters of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, would be Romans chapter 3, verse 24, wherein we read that we have been justified through redemption. Now stay with me for just a moment as we embrace the big picture. I understand many would hear those terms justified and redemption and draw the conclusion that's church language. I don't understand. I think I'll switch channels. So before you switch channels, listen to how simple and yet so deep and profound are these terms. In, in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we read that we have been justified because we've been redeemed. The word justified simply means to, to be made right with God. Now there's no one alive who can accomplish that in and of their, their own selves or of their own goodness. The Bible teaches us clearly we can't accomplish the right type of goodness or the right amount of goodness to be considered right with God. So God has made us right with himself. At, at no cost to us, meaning his making us right with him expresses a free gift. This is why in the scripture, that free gift is known as God's grace given by his love through Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can be made right with God, acceptable to God. I dare say most people, unless there's some type of pathology uh, interrupting the flow of thought, most people desire to do what is right with their own lives. And most people understand that there is somewhere a standard of right or good that, that we should attain toward in our actions and attitudes in our lives. 
God is the one standard of the absolute truth of goodness. And the scripture teaches us through this term justification that God has made us right with him so that we do not have to earn that rightness with God on our own. Because I can assure you, I'm not good enough, you're not good enough to earn God's approval because He's good and holy and righteous and just and perfect and we're not. So the Bible teaches us that we've been made right with God. So you may be thinking, well, if God made us right with Himself, then who purchased that? Who paid for that if that gift is free to us? Well, this brings in the word redemption. We have been justified through the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. We've been made right with God through the redemption. And, and the word redemption is just as simple and clear as the word justification. Justified, been made right with God. Re redemption, purchased back. Herein lies the meaning of this word, redeemed or redemption. God has, through Jesus, paid the ultimate price through allowing His Son, through through giving His Son to die on the cross so that we could be purchased back from our sin and our brokenness to be made right with God. That's the gospel. And when we read in Romans 12, 1, therefore, that term transitionally points us back to the first 11 chapters, which gives us what I like to call the indicative. These chapters indicate who we are if our faith is in Jesus. We've been made right with God and we've been redeemed back to God. Sin no longer has the last word when we trust what Jesus did on the cross. God has accepted us because of what Christ has done in His death and resurrection. Therefore, because of who we are, now notice what follows. This is certainly uh, the message for the moment. Therefore, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Surrender your whole life to God based on what He's done for you. Respond to Him. Live this out. Walk in the way of the truth that you've been justified and you've been redeemed. That God has made you right with Himself and He purchased that through Jesus Christ. I, I love the old preacher, Vance Havner. You've, you've heard me quote him a lot. He made this quote once, and I, I love this, uh, God desires our bodies to be a living sacrifice and not to be corpses. I, I love this. We are told in Romans 12, 1, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, because we've been justified and redeemed, those two seemingly big words that have simple meanings, because of this, therefore, we are to surrender our whole life to God and to Jesus and to say, God, I'll, I'll follow you. God desires that we present ourselves living unto him and not as corpses. Perhaps spiritually, there are those who feel dead inside. Maybe you feel dead because of some sin that you just can't seem to forgive yourself of. Or perhaps you feel dead inside because of something someone has done against you. Perhaps you feel dead because you're confused and, and it's difficult to navigate the truth. Oh, dear friend, lean into this because of what Jesus has done. We are made alive if our faith is, is in Him. Therefore, we live surrendered to Him. This becomes the big picture. Let me give you a second perspective of our personal commitment. The first is because of what Jesus has done, therefore, we live for him. We, we are not motivated strictly by religion, nor by church, nor by 
uh, people who we may look to as mentors or examples, we're motivated by what God has done for us through Jesus. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, we should consider our lives a living sacrifice unto God. This brings us to a, a second perspective. Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. From the big picture, we now consider the second perspective of the highest motivation. The scriptures read, I, I urge you by the mercies of God. I love this term urge. It can be translated in, in other ways as beseech. Or I, I encourage you. The word for urge comes from that Greek term that has such deep and rich meaning, parakaleo, meaning to call alongside. I desire that you would really see the tenderness of this call for just a moment so that we can see the highest motivation to be committed to Jesus mirrored here. And remember, our commitment to Jesus does not offer salvation. Our commitment to Jesus is in response to what Christ has done. Therefore, because of what he's done, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, serve him. But notice how the verse demonstrates this, this motivation. I urge you by the mercies of God. The greatest motivation for serving our Lord does not rest with denominational obligation or, or ecumenical correctness. In other words, our motivation to serve God and to serve Jesus shouldn't rest upon the, the idea of the church as an organization or the idea of, of people expecting us to be good simply because we desire to follow Jesus. Our motivation to serve rests fully, completely, and exclusively upon the mercies of God. When Paul said, I urge you or I beseech you, this term parakaleo gives the imagery of Paul reaching out. And notice in verse 1, he references the recipients of his conversation, of his letter, as brothers. There is tenderness here. I beseech you by God's mercies to serve well in your personal commitment. Oh, our highest motivation expresses a response to the mercies of God. In, in the small book of Philemon, verses 8 and 9, Paul was encouraging with this phrase, although I have the boldness to command you, I would rather beseech you. Well, I love the tenderness that also becomes mirrored here in Paul's words. I, I beseech you, I encourage you to serve our Lord by the motivation of his mercies. Now, the mercies of God reference not necessarily specific acts of kindness. Now, we do know in the book of Romans, we're told that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And that kindness there has with it a connotation very similar to the term mercies here. The idea does not rest simply in specific good acts that we know God pours into our lives daily. And oh, how good our God is to us. But the idea of mercies here in the plural form doesn't represent necessarily specific individual acts of God's kindness as it represents the entire demonstration of his love for us manifested perfectly and that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we could know his love personally. Herein becomes the 
powerful summary of God's love. Christ died for us. His mercies are given to us. This becomes the motivation. God's mercies. God's goodness. Only Christ Jesus, a full demonstration of God's love, can serve as the perfect motivation for us to serve him genuinely. I'll prove this. A contemporary to Paul was a Stoic by the name of Seneca. Now stay with me. This history will validate this incredible motivation of the mercies of God. Seneca represented for Rome in the mid-first century uh, their, their greatest figure of intellectualism. He was indeed a, a true definition of stoicism, of, of high-regarded philosophy and insight and wisdom. Uh, we learn from some of Seneca's writings that he was also a very strong moralist. He taught strong moral values. But herein becomes the problem. Regardless of how strong were the moral teachings of Seneca for Rome, Rome was still very depraved. And the, the, the sheer uh, sinfulness and fallenness uh, and, and, and putatry that, that characterized Rome uh, contrasted woefully and sadly the morals that were being taught. So regardless of how good one might be to convince others of a moral goodness, the only motivation to live in a way that honors God is the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul said, I urge you by the mercies of God to live out what Jesus has done for you. Consider this. I, I love uh, this story from the historian Paul Veen. He, he writes this. He, uh, he saw himself as as an atheist, one who was an unbeliever. But this is what this historian, citing himself as an unbeliever, actually said. He, he wrote this. In the gospel, a person's life suddenly acquired an eternal significance within a cosmic plan, something that no philosophy or pagan religion could confer. Even the supposed pagan gods themselves lived for their own existence. But in contrast, Jesus, the man of God, the, the God-man, sacrificed himself for his own. Christianity owed its success to the collective invention of a genius. And that genius was namely the infinite mercy of a God passionate about the fate of the human race. Indeed, about the fate of each individual soul, including mine and yours, and not just a general concern about humanity. What an amazing summary written by a self-claimed atheist, but nonetheless recognizing the power of the mercies that God has given us through Christ so that we could be brought to him. The greatest motivation to serve, the highest motivation becomes expressed and our response to the mercies of God. So this represents the second perspective of our personal commitment. Now I'll give you a third and final perspective to refresh our personal commitment. For here, again, Romans 12, 1, because of the term therefore, pointing back to all that reference what Christ has done, we are called to personal commitment. Present your body. So here we are with the third and final perspective that refreshes our personal commitment. And now we look at uh, 
the, the full verse, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship or your acceptable spiritual act of worship. The, the third uh, final perspective expresses the depth of service. We, we saw the, the big picture, did we not? We saw the highest motivation. So from the big picture, therefore, to the highest motivation, I urge you by the mercies of God, we come to the depths of service to present yourself a living sacrifice. Do you hear that phrase, living sacrifice? Often I think at times we we serve because we desire to be good people, good religious people, maybe good church people. But the calling referenced here um, characterizes a a living sacrifice. Notice how the the phraseology uh, continues out: uh, holy and acceptable to God, and then the remainder of that, which is your spiritual service of worship, your your reasonable act of worship. The term reasonable here expresses that which is suitable for the person and the moment and the and the experience. Suitable to one who has their faith in Christ comes this reasonable act of giving our lives, surrendering our lives as a living sacrifice. Now because this language has uh, nuances that, that points us straight directly back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. I'd like to draw a few um, comparisons between our calling to be uh, symbolically a, a living sacrifice, albeit I would also say literally a living sacrifice, serving God from that depth. And, and we can see the emphasis as we uh, notice in correlation with the Old Testament sacrificial system. I'll just name a few of these uh, for you. In the former sacrificial system, meaning the Old Testament, there was indeed the sacrifice, an unblemished bullock or, or a, a, a lamb was brought to, to sacrifice. There was indeed a sacrifice. We are called to be a living sacrifice, meaning that we are called to give our lives and our interests and our desires unto God. We're called to do that ourselves. We can't um, give someone else as a living sacrifice, nor can they give us themselves. We have to give our own lives. As a sacrifice wherein we say, God, take my thoughts and my dreams, my aspirations, my job, my family, take, take my, my preferences, take, take my, my thoughts, God, you take all of this. And, and I desire by your own mercies to, to be a living sacrifice. So one correlation builds upon the word sacrifice. We literally surrender ourselves to the Lord for, for his honor and glory. A second correlation has to do with this idea of present. Present your life, your body, your whole being as a living sacrifice. The word present in its original form can be very sacerdotal, meaning it has with it the idea of ceremony like that of a priest, literally presenting a sacrifice on the altar. And this uh, sacerdotal uh, notion or presentation had to do with transferring what was ours into God's possession. There is a change of jurisdiction, if you will. We, we are told that our bodies belong to us, our, 
Our dreams and our desires are ours. We can do with them as we will. But when we see the love of God in Christ and desire to respond in our personal commitment, then, then we, according to this verse, should desire this, this personal sacrifice wherein we say, God, you, you take all of me. I present this to you. My life is now in your jurisdiction. I no longer claim jurisdiction. And why? Because we present ourselves as a sacrifice to the highest, to God himself in Christ. And so a second correlation is present. We sacrifice and our sacrifice of, of surrender is, is presented. But there's a third correlation to the, to the Old Testament sacrificial system. This term acceptable. Do you see this here? We are to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. The term holy and acceptable seem to be somewhat interchangeable, meaning set apart exclusively to God and received by him as acceptable. We know all throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system that the offerings that God would be presented that were acceptable to him had a fragrant aroma. I love Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. And I read this from a more antiquated translation than maybe what you're familiar with, but I love how this rings out. We are as Christians unto Christ, a sweet savor. This uh, translates and resonates this idea of, of a pleasing aroma that would come up from the Old Testament sacrifices into the nostrils of God so that that sacrifice would become acceptable. And we present ourselves based on the mercies of God in Christ as a living sacrifice. We're not dead. We've been made alive inside. And, and in that being made alive through our faith in Christ, we become holy and acceptable to God, a pleasing aroma, a savory aroma in his nostrils. A final correlation would be this idea of worship. That phrase is not included here, but the verse, the verse concludes with all of this is your reasonable service of worship. All this rings out so powerfully concerning personal commitment. And, and we close here. So I ask you to lean in on this final correlation with the uh, Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, as a reminder, the first correlation was sacrifice. The second, present. The third, acceptable. But the fourth is worship. All of this references our reasonable service of worship, our correct, suitable the, the only suitable response to the love of God would be giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, a living surrender, saying, God, I am yours. All oh, this becomes a beautiful picture of the depth of our service unto God, because this idea of worship rings out very powerfully concerning our, our serving and honoring Jesus Christ, through our life, through our obedience, through our words and our deeds. Again, not out of a legalism that might earn God's favor, but in response to the mercies that God's given us in Jesus. So this idea of worship, this being our reasonable act of worship, comes from a, a term in the Greek, lutreo, which, which is a one of three ways in which worship is expressed in the New Testament. This term, lutreo, is used some 21 times in the New Testament, and it signifies not something that is inclined to music, but rather something that is postured to serve sincerely. The idea of worship is that we are bowed before God to serve Him. So true worship does not necessitate 
music, although music is a significant part of worship expression. But the call here is to present our lives, our bodies, that word that demonstrates our whole being as an acceptable surrender and sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable act of worshiping Jesus Christ. Yes, it would be very possible that someone might sing a song perfectly, but that song not resonate acceptable worship because worship, lutreo, references the bowing down sincerely before God. Someone could preach a sermon but not preach that sermon as a true act of worship if the heart does not express the sincerity of honoring Jesus Christ. And so worship becomes our posture of giving all to the Lord for his glory and surrendering our hearts to him. Not because we think that's what a good religious person does, but because we've looked at the mercies of of God through Christ and we cannot help but say, Jesus, I give all of my life to you. This becomes a phenomenal summary of personal commitment. Our reasonable act of worship and service is to present our lives as a living sacrifice. I love the quote from an old, old pastor by the name of C.C. Colton who wrote this. Men will wrangle up for religion. They'll write for it and they'll fight for it and they'll die for it. But will they live for it? You know, in a day of uncertainty where at times maybe you feel like your faith is under attack and perhaps you look around the globe and draw the conclusion, hey, if I have to die for Jesus, I'll die for him. And I think that is a noble commitment. But I believe what Jesus is asking of us right now is not will we die for him, but will we live for him? It's one thing to say, Jesus, if I'm called to the stake, I'll die for you. Great, resolved. But how easily do we resolve tomorrow morning when we wake up? Jesus, I'll live for you. I'll live for you completely without hesitation. Yes, we write about our faith. We we sing about it. We even say we'll die for our faith. But will we truly live in every single part of our lives in honor to who Jesus Christ is as our Savior and as our Lord. Thank you for uh, leaning into this time of teaching. And, and this sixth part of our teaching series reminds us how vital it becomes to see our commitment to follow Jesus as very personal. I pray these perspectives from Romans 12.1 has encouraged you to resolve. I will give my life in full surrender to Jesus as a living sacrifice because of what Jesus has done for me. Sounds simple, right? But we know the task is really, really challenging. But I do pray that you'll resolve today in a personal commitment to follow Jesus. May I pray with you? Father, thank you for teaching us through your word. And now as we close out this time of worship, oh, Father, I pray that you'll remind us of of the fact that now that we know the truth, following Jesus is on us. What will we do in response to Jesus? Father, for anyone who's listening today who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that they'll place their faith in Jesus today. And and Father, if uh, there's someone who is your child and they've heard this message and they're struggling in their personal commitment, Father, I pray that this message has encouraged them and has fanned the flame of their commitment to you. Father, thank you for speaking to us. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, 
Amen. Again, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'd like for us to put a, just a brief uh, website location right here on the screen so that you know how you can reach out. And in a typical um, worship service uh, on site, uh, you have an opportunity to have real conversations with real people at the end of the service. But here online, maybe it does not feel quite so personal, but we desire to make it personal. So, so here's a website location. If you'd like to reach out, we'll be right back in touch with you to encourage your walk of faith or to uh, talk with you about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Again, thank you for being a part of this time of worship. Love you a lot. I look forward to joining you for part seven of our teaching series conversations next week. The focus today, personal commitment. The focus next week, community. You'll not want to miss that conversation. Love you a lot. God bless.